Welcome again. We're dedicating this learning to prepare spiritually for the fast of Tisha B'Av. And there's so many things we could say. I'm going to try to narrow the focus to, to the positive. Hopefully it's clear to everyone that as heavy a day as Tisha B'Av is, the whole nine days, the whole three weeks, all of Jewish history, it's really not a time for depression or even sadness. Because sadness and depression leads us to be, in a sense, emotionally and intellectually frozen, where not much productive can come out of it. And as strange as it might sound, we want something positive to come out of the fast. We want to come to a tikkun. The Salonimah Rebbe, among most of the Hasidic Rebbe's, said, on one hand, it, it, it is true that we're crying for the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jewish sovereignty, for all of Jewish history. There's no, no doubt about it. But he said, to, to cry over something that happened 2,000 years ago, there is a worth to it. Don't get me wrong. Don't get the slogan wrong. But he said what we're really crying for, what really pains us, is what our sages told us, that if, if, if a person lives in a generation where the temple is not being rebuilt, it means that it's as if we're living in the generation where it is being destroyed. And since it appears that we have not made the proper rectifications, the proper tikkunim, for the reasons why the, the temple was destroyed in the first place, that is what should really pain us. What is it? about us that we don't merit a full redemption. And that, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, that, that touches us much deeper than crying over something that happened 2,000 years ago. As important as it is, again, don't, don't misquote me or get me wrong. So what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to focus on a more, a more positive um, approach. And this is reflected in something that happened after the, after the fire in the Moshav, is someone asked a good friend, a lone teaker, uh, if he was optimistic about the future, if he was hopeful about the future. And he answered, it was like a week or two after the fire. He said, it's not that I'm hopeful or optimistic, I'm determined. I'm determined to rebuild the Moshav. And so in our day, when we are seeing the rebuilding of Eretz Yisrael, 
the ingathering of the exiles. Yerushalayim is not the same destroyed city or the empty city that it was 150 years ago. We, the Jewish people are meriting to see something awesome is, is happening here. And so we want to stay with a determined uh, response to Jewish history and all the oppression that we have uh, experienced and look forward towards redemption. Because of course we're told that Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av, out of the ashes. And of course, this is not just a metaphor, out, out of the ashes of the Holocaust, the state of Israel is, is reborn. So we're told that every month has a chush, has a sense. And since the, the three week period that we are in between the two fast days of the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av, encompasses two months, Tammuz and Av. The sense of the month of Tammuz is seeing, Re'iyah, and the sense for the month of Av is hearing. And it's explained very simply that during the month of Tammuz and up to Tisha B'Av, the spies were checking out the land of Israel, but they're, they're, what they saw was not properly understood, not properly integrated. And so we have to do a tikkun on how we see the world, ourselves, Eretz Israel, the Jewish people, everything. And the sense of the month of Av is hearing because we heard on Tisha B'Av itself the report from the spies and we, we just accepted it. It was lush and hurrah. It was it was it was uh, evil speech, but we listened to it, and so in a sense we were as guilty that we listened to it. We could have listened to Yeshua and Kala that said we can make it. Of course we can make it. So I thought that it would be appropriate to talk about a little bit about the Shema. Because in the Shema, in a sense, it brings together sight and hearing. How? Well, the first word of Shema is Shema, is hear, is hearing, Shemiah. And we do a very, very special thing when we say the Shema. We not only close our eyes, we cover them with our hand, a double covering. And it's brought down that sometimes when you want to see very deeply, you close your eyes. That's why a lot of people, when they're deep in thought and they're trying to come to some understanding, intuitively we close our eyes because that, in a sense, opens up an inner sight. So I want to do something. I want to tell four stories about the Shema. But before, I just want to mention that it's, it's very appropriate because in this week's Parsha that we always read after Tisha B'Av is the Shema. 
the Shema in the Torah comes in Parshat Ve'etchanan. And it, it, it's not a, a coincidence because the way the sages arrange the parshiyot, the Torah portions will always read the parsha of Devarim before Tisha B'Av and will always read the Etchanan right after. So in other words, after Tisha B'Av, when a person could become depressed and sad, and by looking at Jewish history, say like, what is this, what is this all for? Why am I holding on here? So we, we say the Shema in the Parsha. That's when it comes. So I want to tell four stories. And I was thinking about this because I and many other people merited to be with Reb Shlomo uh, almost every Tisha B'Av. I was with him, I believe, 12, uh, 12 or 13 straight Tisha B'Avs. And he would tell stories. He would tell the most heartbreaking stories from the Gomorrah about the first and second temple, from the Holocaust, from the Crusades, from the Inquisition in Spain. Just heartbreaking stories, but they were so deep that it actually gave us strength. Because Reb Shlomo used to teach there's two types of miracles. There's God miracles, and there's Yidden miracles. What are Yidden miracles? That when the odds are so against an individual or a community or all of Am Yisrael, and we make it through somehow. He said, these are Jewish miracles. So I'm going to tell the stories fairly quickly, but hopefully uh, they'll give everyone inspiration. The first one is, is, is probably the most famous story in all of Jewish history about Shema. And that's when, of course, Rabbi Akiva is being tortured to death and his skin is being flayed off of him with burning combs. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he, his students who are watching see he's preparing to say the Shema. And they, they, they say, Rabbi, how do you have the, the, the state of mind to say the Shema as you're being tortured to death? And he very famously answered, my whole life I've been waiting and anticipating a time that I could fulfill the, the mitzvah of loving God with my whole soul. Like we say in the first passage after the Shema, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And he said, now that I have the chance, I shouldn't fulfill it. And he said the Shema, and as he came to the last letter, the Dalit, his soul left his body. And this story quite literally inspired, unfortunately, literally hundreds of thousands of people to say Shema. First of all, 
it's a known thing that if a person is on their deathbed and knows they're about to die, <clears throat> so along with the final confession they'd be doing, you say the Shema. But especially someone who's being killed for maintaining their Jewish faith, based on what Rabbi Akiva did. And so it's known that in, 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 in the concentration camps, quite literally, millions of people went to their death with Shema on their, list, on their lips. And so on one hand, we could, I mean, there's no word for the emotional baggage that that carries. But on the other hand, it, it gives us such strength that we're from a people that through thick and thin, our faith conquers all, conquers death. So that's the first story. The second story is, it was 1989, and my family and I were in Los Angeles. We were at our good friends, the Richies, for Shabbat. And he said, I'm going to take you to a very special place this Shabbos. We went, it was a private home. It was a mansion. And in the home, there was a huge library. Well, there was like, it was a whole congregation there in the library davening. And afterwards, it was Sheva Brachas for the Balabites granddaughter. And later, uh, I asked uh, Josh Ritchie, what's the story? So this is the story he told me, and he said he heard it from the man himself, who was uh, Rabbi Reuben. And the story was like this, that he was in uh, one of the concentration camps, and it was the last days of the war. The Germans knew that they had lost the war, and they were desperately trying to hide as much as they could of the different concentration camps, what they did. And they had these forced marches trying to stay ahead of the um, conquering armies closing in on them. And in these forced marches, people were not given any food and you couldn't stop to go to the bathroom. If you stopped or you fell, they would just shoot you. And so this Rabbi Rubin, who was a relatively young man at that point, he's at the end of his strength. He's like held on for through the, through the, through the whole war. And now it's, it's the very end. And he's just people are literally dropping all around him, being shot. And he's trying to continue. And he's just losing strength. And at one point, he's he, he's almost ready. I just I can't go on. I just I can't go on. And he related the following thought that he had. He said to himself that right now, because they're not allowed to stop, and many of them had dysentery, so his, his clothes were completely soiled. And he said, master of the world, I, I'm, at this point, 
if, if I'm meant to die, I'll die. But I refuse to die without saying the Shema. And right now, Jewish law is, is if I'm, my clothes and my body are soiled, I can't say the Shema. So Rabona Sha'olam, give me strength to carry on. Because I will not leave this world without saying the Shema. And that gave him a burst of energy, and he survived. He survived. When I first heard this, I was just astounded. I was just so moved, absolutely so moved by the inner strength and the faith that Rabbi Rubin had. The third story. Everyone's heard of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl uh, wrote a very famous book called In, In Search of Meaning. He was um, in, in, in the camps. And he was, uh, when he went into the camps, he was, I believe at that point, either studying for his doctorate, I don't know the details exactly, or his, his master's, his doctorate, and he had, when he was taken from his home, he had a, a, a manuscript. It, it, it might have been his, his thesis, I'm not sure. <clears throat> but it was his life's work at that point. And he had put like everything into this, this uh, thesis. And somehow he had hidden it and he was carrying it on him and, and was praying that it won't be discovered. After a short time in, in the first of the camps he was in, it was discovered and it was taken away from him and destroyed. And he was so down and depressed and, and just, he just couldn't, couldn't believe it. It just felt like his whole life had just disappeared disappeared. And so he tells a story himself that he was walking around in a complete state of depression. And they were wearing, you know, these, uh, I guess, prison clothes, concentration camp clothes. And every once in a while, they would change, change them. And one time he, ch he changed his clothes. And he put his hand in, his, in the pocket and he felt a piece of paper in there. And he pulled it out and it was part of a siddur, it's part of a prayer book. And on it, it had the verse, <coughs> excuse me, the verse of Shema. Excuse me a second, I already said a bracha. Had the verse of Shema. And when he saw it, to him, it was a sign from heaven that not all is lost. You still have your faith and you still have what to live for. And he says it, it just turned his, his life around. Later, he, be, he wrote this book, In Search of Meaning, that 
his experience in the camps was very much like this experience that he saw people who would lose hope and lose faith and lose uh, any semblance of, of desire to live. Most of them didn't make it because they just, they, they kind of gave up the will to live. And yet those who, despite it all, despite it all, could just hang on to a little bit of hope and a sense of purpose that I'm going to make it through this and I have a purpose to my life, that they, they made it. And obviously not all the time his people were being killed left and right, but I'm just saying <clears throat> for those who um, weren't shot or gassed, many people just died of disease and hunger and broken hearts. And the last one is a very um, recent one. And in Israel, it's become a, a very famous story that this was during the war in Lebanon. And there was a young captain of a small group of soldiers. And as you might know, in the Israeli army, going all the way back to David Melech, to King David, there's always been an ethos, ethos that the commander, the captain, goes first, not stays behind the lines, but leads. And so they were on a mission, and part of the mission were to search out terrace in different houses or buildings. And they were they went into a house or building. His whole his seven, I, I don't remember how many, five, six, seven guys. And someone from outside threw a hand grenade into the house right between the group. And usually a hand grenade blows up within a second or two. And so I don't know what even what you call it, um, you know, gut reaction or just uh, training. He, his name was Roy Klein, um, and he dived on the grenade in order to absorb the the um, blast that in potential would have killed everyone because it was, a, it was a small space and he had like one second to think. And as he fell on the grenade, he yelled out Shema Yisrael. So this in Israel became uh, a led, again, again, it's a, a tragic story. He left a wife and a number of ch young children and of course, it's it's such a tragic story, but it's it, it depends how we listen. Remember, this month is the fixing of hearing. So we want to hear these stories 
can be determined that we have a purpose in this world. The Jewish people have a purpose. We have a purpose that we came back to Eretz Yisrael. We have a purpose that we're a people for 4,000 years. And we have a purpose to fix this world, to bring light to the world, to bring healing to the world. And in one sense, Tisha B'Av is the low point of the year, quite literally as we sit on the floor. It's the low point of the year. And yet from that low point, from these very tragic stories, we get strength and we get hope and we get determination that we didn't hold out as a people all of this time not to fulfill our mission. So I want to bless everyone with a an easy easy fast and of course there's always the hope that a miracle will occur we won't have to fast but in case that we do that we we do it with steely determination to to have a purpose in life and to fulfill the purpose of the Jewish people to bring healing light rectification and redemption to the world everyone have an easy fast